Let's read from the scriptures. We'll turn to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read the first six verses. It says here, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 8. And we pray the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now this morning, I'm commencing a very short series of messages on the theme that I've entitled, The Holiness of God. And I want to direct your attention today to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. And we read there, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there's the text. I'm going to give you the title of the message, The Holiness of God. Now, the death of King Uzziah marked the end of one of Judah's godly kings and his reign. He had started his reign when he was six years old, and he reigned for 52 years. At the start of his reign, he sought the Lord. He asked the Lord to help him to build up not only the walls of Jerusalem, but Judah as well. And of course, it was the Lord that caused him to prosper. We read in Second Chronicles chapter 26, and in the verse 9, Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, and at the valley gate, and at the turning of the wall, and fortified them. Also he built towers in the desert, and digged many wells, for he had much cattle, both in the low country and in the plains, husbandmen also, and vine dressers in the mountains, and in Carmel, for he loved husbandry. He also built up the defenses of Jerusalem and Judah, not only fortifying the walls, but strengthening the army. Now, King Uzziah was marvelously helped by the Lord. The Lord prospered the works of his hands until the day he became strong and full of pride. Even though he was a good man, remember he was just a man. 
And good men, sometimes even strong leaders, can err in their judgment. And in the process of time, King Uzziah's heart and mind became full of pride. And isn't it sad that in his latter years, he began to trust in himself and he forgot that it was the Lord's hand that was upon him that had caused him to prosper. And you can read about this man in Second Chronicles chapter 26, verses um, uh, 9 right through to verse 21. But listen to what it says in verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. You see, King Uzziah took upon himself something that he had no right to do or to interfere with. He was a king. A king rules on the throne. But he was not a priest. And one day, sadly and sinfully, he went into the temple to burn incense before the Lord. Now, the Lord viewed this as a very gracious sin. It was totally against the law of God. This sin profaned the holy place. And as he stood at the altar with the censer in his hand, against the, the protestations of many others, the Bible tells us that God smote him with leprosy and he ended his days as a leper. Again, if we read what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 21, it says, And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Was not a dreadful way to end what was, to all intents and purposes, a most successful and a good reign. Now, when King Uzziah died, of course, the land was plunged into mourning. Think of the death of a king, and everybody was talking about it. This was a real constitutional crisis. And if you look at Isaiah 6 and verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, I want you to notice the words, in the year that King Uzziah died. You see, his death had a big impact on the life of the country. His death was a very important event. The king's dead. His reign is over. It's the end of his rule and authority. And the throne, of course, of Judah for a time was empty. And in that year, the prophet Isaiah went into the house of God, started seeking the Lord. And of course, he was given a wonderful vision of God and God's throne. He saw a more glorious and more wondrous king in heaven whose reign had not ended. A royal king whose power and authority and majesty would, would never change or ever diminish. What did he see? He says, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. The throne, of course, is a symbol of power and majesty and authority. High and lifted up is a symbol of prominence and preeminence. Um, notice uh, also here we, we, we read, and his train filled the temple. That, 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 that has to be a symbol of his presence. The temple pinpoints exactly where Isaiah was. So in the midst of this crisis, he's in praying, he's seeking the Lord, he wants to meet with the Lord, he, he, he wants to, to, to ask the Lord's counsel and help. And what does he see? He sees 
a living, powerful king in heaven. He sees the Lord of glory, the self-existent one, the, the one who's immortal, the, the one who's only and always the most glorious, majestic God of heaven and earth. And God is seated on his throne. And, and that throne is high and lifted up. It's in a place of prominence and preeminence. And, and this king on the throne, he has creatures that are singing about him. And they're above the throne. Notice the seraphims. The seraphims is a classification of angels. And they're known as the burning ones or the shining ones. Each of them have six wings, two to cover their face, uh, two to, to cover their feet, and two to fly. And they cried one to another, and they were saying something about the Lord. Notice they weren't focusing on themselves as heavenly creatures. They, they weren't focusing on the temple. They weren't focusing on the death of Uzziah and the crisis that had come into the land. They weren't even focusing on Isaiah the prophet. The subject was one theme only. Look at the text. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice the repetition here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You see, it's repeated three times for emphasis. I believe the Spirit of God is stressing something about God's character here. And when I think about the holiness of God, I believe there's no text that can set forth the holiness of God in such a way than this particular text this morning. Now here we are and we're thinking about God. We're thinking about Him in heaven. We're thinking about Him on His throne. And we could think about the revelation of himself and his glorious, sovereign majesty and power. And what do we learn about him? Well, we learn that he is a holy God. We learn here that he's thrice holy. And you know, I'm convinced that this is not a small matter. I'm convinced that this is another missing ingredient today in modern day Christendom. A missing ingredient in the life and witness of the Christian church. The Christian church may have forgotten many things. But one thing it has forgotten about is the absolute holiness of God. Now it's true that God is love. It's true that in him is light and life. And it is wonderful to know that he's loving and gracious a merciful, a God with whom is plenteous redemption. But let's never forget that he's also revealed in the Bible as a holy God. And if we have lost sight of that, if we have forgotten that, then this is something that we need to rediscover because this is a vital and a very important subject when we think about who and what God is. I want us to think of three things this morning. I want us to think about the fact of God's holiness. And then we look at the focus of God's holiness. And then we look at the fruit of God's holiness if we have time. So we're going to ask the question here. We'll ask it to Isaiah the prophet. You were in the temple in the year that King Isaiah died. You were seeking the Lord. You got a sight of him. Well, what's he like, Isaiah? How, how would you describe him to us? 
We, we want to know him too. What, what would Isaiah answer? I believe that Isaiah's answer, if he came into the pulpit this morning, would be this. That he's glorious in holiness. Remember part of the song of children of Israel after they departed from the Red Sea and came into the land of Canaan? Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You see, this is not a rumor. This is not speculation on the part of the prophet. This is not something mere that he has conjectured in his own mind. This is not his biased opinion. This is not something that he can say, well, I think this is what God is like. Because it's not the church's thinking. It's not the prophet's thinking. The holiness of God is a fact. It cannot be denied because it is real. As I've said, Exodus 15 verse 11 He is described as glorious in holiness. The psalmist said in Psalm 96 and verse 9, Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Over there in the book of the Psalms, again in Psalm 30, and it's in the verse 4, we uh, read uh, these words in Psalm 30 and verse 4. Listen to the word of God this morning. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Now, isn't that tremendous? Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. In other words, it's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. It's not up for a deliberation on whether God is holy or not. The holiness of God is an essential attribute of the character of God. Here's Isaiah, and he's in the temple. He's God's prophet. He's God's preacher. He's been preaching woes and judgment in the uh, territory of Judah in the city of Jerusalem for many months, maybe even running into years. Here he is in the year that King Isaiah died. What does he do? He goes into the house of God. He's seeking the face of his God. He's asking God for help and counsel. Lord, what do we do? We're in a crisis. And what does the Lord do? The Lord gives him a fresh vision, not only of the throne, but a fresh vision of himself. Now you think of Isaiah, what an impression he is now God of his God. He's discovering that his God is in himself intrinsically holy. That he is glorious in holiness. And that is a, an indispensable part of his being. He is separate, pure Eternally pure, sinlessly pure, everlastingly pure from everyone else in the whole of the universe. So you think this morning of the fact of God's holiness, I want you to discover this, that God is essentially holy. Young people, what is God like? He's love, he's light, he's life, yes, but God is essentially holy. 
If there's no holiness, then we would have to say there's no God. Could I tell you something else? I believe that God is entirely holy. See, this is not a a mere covering. This is not something that's like a a veneer, an outward cloak. God is not unholy in any of his essential or moral attributes. There's not one single fault or flaw in God. There's not one speck of sin. There's nothing in him that corresponds to evil or to badness. We live in a day and know that we have good men and godly men in the pulpits of our land. And no matter how good and godly men appear to be and appear to be holy, let's remember they are at best still mere creatures of human clay. And and their, their, their best efforts are marked and tainted with sin and uncleanness. Even in our holiest moment, we still have a heart that's full of impure motives and thoughts. But the God of heaven, the God of the Bible, he hasn't sinned in thought, in word or in deed. He doesn't hanker after sin, long after sin. It's not possible that he sins. He's incapable of sin. There's nothing in the Lord for sin to hang on to. You think of an intrinsically holy being who never had a sinful word uttered, entertained a sinful thought, engaged in a sinful deed. He is perfectly Intrinsically pure. No lust, no lies, no lewdness, no, 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 no wrong motives, no, no impure thoughts. You know, there's been a few days this past week where the sun has been shining. And it's great, of course, that we all enjoy the sunshine. I was in a room and I thought the room was clean and I I live in a house with a a lady who's very fond of cleaning and I went into the mother-in-law's room the sun was coming through the windows and I just looked round and as the rays of sun came in through the window I could see the dust in the air I I could see the dust beginning to light on the um, bedroom locker and and the chest of drawers etc etc and I was thinking of those words where, where the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He, he, he exists as pure, perfect, pure, indescribable light. See, God is not only essentially holy, but he's entirely holy. Do you know that God is exclusively holy? Turn over there to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Look with me at Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4. Revelation verse 15, chapter 15, verse 4. The Bible says, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Underline those words. For thou only art holy. You see, 
The singers asked the question, Who is like unto thee, O Lord? Who is like unto thee when they come out of Egypt and cross the Red Sea and into Canaan land? There's none. Because there's no other being that is glorious in holiness, faithful in praises, doing wonders. He alone is like this. God is unequal. God is unsurpassed in his holiness. I know that we could talk about holy men of God, the patriarchs, the apostles. We could talk about ministers and elders and deacons in the church. We could talk about evangelists and they're all set apart for particular work. But as they do the work of the Lord and try to do it well and and try to get the Lord to, to prosper the work of their hands, the Lord is the only true holy one. He's essentially holy. He's entirely holy. He's exclusively holy. Can I tell you something else? He's eternally holy. He knows no change. He is eternally the same from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. What is God? God is a spirit. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is eternally the same. God's holiness cannot and does not diminish with time. God cannot and will ever lose his holiness. He can't be more holy tomorrow than he was today or yesterday. God dwells in holiness. Perfect, pure, powerful holiness. So I leave with you the fact of God's holiness. Let's put that into our mind. God is holy. And if you're asking, what have I learned in church this morning as a young person? Then go out with those three words. I have learned that God is holy. Notice something else here. The focus of God's holiness. We could ask the question, where or in what way do we see God's holiness manifested? How was God revealed his perfect, pure, powerful holiness? Well, Again, we're reliant on the scriptures. If you turn there to the book of Psalms and go to Psalm 145 and look with me at the verse 17. Psalm 145, verse 17. And it says there, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. You see, all that God has done or does now or is ever going to do in relation to this universe, all that God does, he does on the basis of his absolute, pure, perfect powerful holiness. God doesn't do anything that's outside the scope of his essential, entire, exclusive, eternal holiness. That includes the works of creation. Remember when God made the world and how did he made it? He made it in the space of six days, six 24-hour days, 
And we read there in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, and in the verse uh, 31, it says, And God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Over in the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 9, and in the verse 6, we read these words, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone, that was made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all things that are therein, the sea, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. So, so we see the holiness of God even in creation, because Creation, remember, testifies to the eternal power and Godhead of God. But God is also holy not only in the works of creation, but he's also holy in the works of providence. Providence has to do uh, with God perfectly ordering all our events and circumstances and everything that God orders by way of events and circumstances. God does it with perfect holiness, perfect justice, he never acts wrongly. There's things, yes, we don't understand. There's things we can't grasp, things we question why. We see a lack of reason. We see a lack of purpose. We see a lack of a plan. But that doesn't change the fact that God is right in doing this, and God is holy in doing this, and God is just. Does the Bible not say, and shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You know, maybe you're going through a set of trying circumstances right now. Things you can't understand. You're baffled. You're worried. Maybe fearful. What are you to do? Well, you're to trust him. The Bible says, trust ye in the Lord forever. Even in the darkness of your situation, in your despair, in your disappointment, let's remember the Bible says, as for God, his way is perfect. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we've got to trust him. The Bible tells us here, and holy in all his works, that has to include the works of providence. It also has to do with the work of revelation. Over there in the book of Romans, we read in Romans chapter 7 and verse um, Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, it says, "Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good." Now it's not tremendous. In Psalm 19 and verse 7, we read the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of God is holy. And the law is a synonym, remember, for the word of God. And the law is just and holy and good and true and pure. And the, Lord ref the law of God reflects the holy nature of God. You, you think this morning of the Ten Commandments, if I could run down them, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make only any graven image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath. Um, we're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why do we come to church every seventh day or, or Sabbath day? Here's the answer. Because God has commanded us. This is God's will for us. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Why? Because this holy God says it. And, and the law is holy. You know, we could think about the literal aspect of the law, but, but the law goes deeper than the literal 
outworking or application of it. it it's not just an action. It's an attitude of the heart and mind. When, whenever the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, it's wide enough to include anger in the heart. If you're angry in your heart and you're saying to someone, I'll fool you. Well, that's anger in the heart. In God's sight, that's like murder. The Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we, we think about that. But you know that lust in the heart, lusting after someone else's wife or girlfriend, that, that's sin in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. You, you mightn't steal somebody's pen or pencil, but, but you could steal their identity. You, 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 could, you could steal away their reputation. You, 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 could, you, you could steal someone's affections. You see, these are all connected. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus put the emphasis on the exceeding holiness of God because the law reveals God's holiness. Over there in Psalm 19, he says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So where's God's holiness seen and revealed? In the works of creation, the works of providence, but also in the work of revelation, because God's law is holy. Do you know what's also seen in the work of redemption? Turn over there to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. I wonder if you ever read this psalm, thought about these words. It says... My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Does not bring us to the cross? Is not one of the utterances of the Lord Jesus from the cross? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. Notice these words, but thou art holy. O oh, thou that inhabited the, the praises of Israel. Now you think of the Lord Jesus on the night he was arrested by the mob in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember he'd been betrayed by Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver, taken to the house of Caiaphas. He had an unjust trial there in the middle of the night. He was beaten. He, he was taken out of the prison in the early hours of the morning and he was sent to Herod. And then Herod examined him and sent him to Pilate. And then Pilate sent him back to Herod. And, and Pilate, remember, washed his hands of the Lord Jesus. And the crowd of soldiers, of course, uh, took the uh, Lord Jesus from the judgment hall. They scourged him. They planted the crown of thorns and they put it on his brow. They um, spat in his face. They smote him. They pulled the hair from his face. They forced him to carry the cross. They, they got him to the place called Golgotha and they nailed him to the tree. You think of those cruel hands of men nailing Christ there. Christ hanging on the tree, suffering and bleeding and died in agony. And, 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 and why was he there? Here's the answer. In the book of Hebrews, we read in chapter 10, verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And here in this messianic psalm, Psalm 22, a Christ-centered psalm, on the cross, as the Lord Jesus cried, My God, why God, why hast thou forsaken me? He made this tremendous statement, But thou art holy. Christ's mind 
was on the holiness of God. God's holiness was in the mind of Christ. God's inflexible holiness and absolute justice had had led to and brought about the death of Christ as a sin bearer, as a substitute, as a sacrifice, as a sin offering, as a surety. And, And God's holiness was such that he would not spare his son, his only begotten son. And the wrath of God was placed upon him. Why? Because God is holy. Essentially. Entirely. Exclusively. Eternally holy. The Bible tells us, For he that is God hath made him that is Christ to be sin for us. And you know sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And here's something we don't often think about. That on the cross, the holiness of God was put in display. Our sin was transferred and put to Christ's account. He was treated as the biggest sinner and criminal of all time. And yet when God the Father saw sin in his son, he turned his face away because he's a pure eyes and to behold iniquity. And he poured out his wrath upon his son because he has to punish sin where he finds sin. Do you see that? Do you know that Jesus Christ in himself is holy? Turn over there to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. Look with me at verse 26. We'll get the context in verse 25. You need to put the two verses together. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for him. There's his death and his resurrection. Notice verse 26, for such an high priest became us who is holy. It's a reference to Christ. Harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Oh, when we see Christ, you should see an image of God's holiness being afflicted because Christ knew no sin, he did no sin, in him was no sin. He was not able to sin. And yet men mock him today. Yet men take his name as a swear word. Men refuse to come and bow the knee before him. When John saw him, the white-haired Christ in the book of Revelation. He fell at his feet as one that was dead. And what did Christ have to do? He came and touched him. He cared for John. He comforted for John. You think of the touch of the Lord. Remember Mr. Tickle? The touch of the hand that brought so much joy and happiness into one's life. The touch of the Lord. Because John fell at his feet as one that was dead. He was overwhelmed with a vision of the majesty of Christ revealing the holiness of God. Our time is going this morning. I want you to think of the fruit of God's holiness. If I asked the question this morning, what do we know about God? The truth is that the most of us, and I say this about myself primarily, we, we, we know so little about him. But if we think this morning that God is holy, what does that mean to us? Could I just say this as we finish, and we'll come back to this theme. We will adopt God's view of sin. God hates sin. Sin is odious to God. It's an offense to him. It's an abomination to him. Habakkuk 1 and 13 says, Thou art of pure eyes, and to behold evil. God can't look on sin. He can't tolerate sin. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, you're not genuinely saved, you're not a true believer... Well, I want to tell you, God hates and detests your sin. All your sin, your open sin, your secret sin, your presumptuous sin, the sins of your heart and your mind, the sins of your mouth. The Bible says, none that defileth shall enter in. 
There'll be no sinful, unholy thing enter his presence or in heaven. Remember King Uzziah, king adopting the role of a priest, offering the incense. And God punished him with leprosy and he ended his days as a leper. That was a physical judgment of the Lord. But there's not only physical judgment because the way of the transgressors are, but there's an eternal judgment. There's a heaven to gain, there's a hell to shun. And you see, God demands that we adopt his view of sin. That we see what sin is in his sight and therefore we repent of it and we repudiate it and we turn from it. And if you are a Christian this morning, let's remember God also demands holiness of life from you. For he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. It's not the church that provides this. It comes because of our saving union with Christ. Christ is holy. Christ is obedient unto the death of the cross. Christ fulfilled the law for us. Christ is holy. Christ earned righteousness for us. Therefore, we can legally be declared righteous and, and, and accepted as holy in him. This is all part of the fruit of God's holiness. I trust this morning as we open up this subject that the Lord will bless these few truths even to our heart and to our understanding.